Welcome to These Are My People, a podcast about finding, building, and engaging your audience. These Are My People asks artists and entrepreneurs to share their stories, strategies, and what they've learned on the road to reaching their true fans. These Are My People is a podcast produced by Smart House Creative, a marketing and digital strategy agency in Seattle, Washington. Hello there, this is Brad Wilkie with Smart House Creative, and you're listening to These Are My People, a podcast about finding and retaining your audience both online and off. So our guest today is Michelle Mitchell. She's an American filmmaker, journalist, and author, best known for her on-camera reporting for PBS and CNN headline news, and her documentaries Haiti, Where Did the Money Go?, which played extensively on PBS, and her latest documentary, The Uncondemned. Which is where we'll begin today. What's The Uncondemned, and why did you make it, Michelle? What I set out to do was to tell the story the first time that rape was prosecuted as an international crime of war. And, um, you know, it's always it's one of those things that's always happened in war. We hear about it all the time. It's also sort of a secret history of war. And in fact, I personally was not aware of how prevalent it was in World War II until I read Anthony Beaver's book, The Fall of Berlin. Mm -hmm. And he chronicles extensively about what the Soviet army did to German women as they marched in. And if anyone listening has uh, really relatives or friends who um, who come from Germany, they've all heard about these stories, but somehow this never made it into history books. But that said, um, I really wanted to tell the story the first time it was prosecuted because um, I knew that a prosecution had happened. I, the case I was aware of was the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Um, lots and lots of chronicling of sexual violence in that conflict by the media. But it ends up the first case was at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which happened at the same time. These are the first international tribunals since Nuremberg. And it really was the beginning of international criminal law as we know it. When we talk about the International Criminal Court, this is the precursor. And what's really interesting is that um, one of the things that, that has, every single time this thing is shown, people walk in a little worried, like, oh my God, I'm going to watch a film about rape and genocide. And that's, and they walk out going, oh, that was so inspiring. And I think that, you know, I, it's a terrible thing what happens in war, but we have rules in place for a reason. And something awful happened in 1994 in Rwanda and in Bosnia and other places. Um, but in 1997, humanity got it right and the perpetrators got in trouble, went to jail. Yeah, it's a, it's a spellbinding story and it, and it really does have that inspiring element, which can be hard to describe. So I think for somebody who hasn't seen the film, what is that that piece or that moment in the film where things sort of pivot and turn from this very dark topic this and you start sort of rooting for the legal team and you know people start realizing that there's more to this and this actually might be something that they can walk out of the movie theater feeling inspired by and that Maybe the world isn't as bad as I thought it was when I came into the, the cinema. Well, you know, I think we all have this idea that in every story there has to be one hero. And as a storyteller, that's certainly what we're taught 
in terms of how to tell one. But what's fascinating to me as an author, as a filmmaker, um, certainly as a journalist, was that there is no one hero in this. And it shows that Mm -hmm. history is not made by an individual. It's often made by a group of individuals that may not know that they're making history at that moment. And in this case, they were very young. And they were just making this up as they went along, and they refused to be deterred. And at the end of the day, that's a very inspiring thing. It's not just the lawyers. It's also the women who step forward to testify. Mm -hmm. They, you know, uh, the Chumbawamba song, you get knocked down, get back up again. Um, Not to be trite. They all love that song. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's one of those things where you realize that, look, this is about resilience and redemption. And that is how good wins over evil. Yeah. So you have had a career of finding interesting, uncovered stories. And this is one of those, and this is what sort of made me think about this question, but I'm surprised that this story hasn't been told in such a way before because it is not just important, but it also has those cinematic elements of uh, a narrative, like a, a through line here. So what drew you, aside from what you just mentioned, but drew you to to tell this story and how does it fit into uh, sort of your historical approach your career Mm -hmm. to to finding and telling these stories are they underdog stories are they social justice driven stories where where's that alignment with your interests and your you know experience I think that from the very beginning, I think if you're if anyone's a journalist out there, I mean, journalism, the basis of it is, why did that guy do that to that guy? And I've always been very interested in that. And I've always been interested ever since I was a kid in what motivated people um, to take certain drastic actions um, for the sake of an idea. And that's a pretty complicated question to ask yourself. And also, there's no clean answer. And I like messy answers. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. Whenever you hear people say, well, there's more than one side of a story. I mean, man, that is such an underestimate. You know, that's such an underestimation of of actually how many different ways you could tell something. Um, So this particular story lent itself to a different type of storytelling, which was really exciting. Um, It was very apparent within my first phone call with Pierre Prosper, who's the lead attorney, um, really a compelling guy, but he gave me you know, his version of the story. And I remember getting off the phone and turning to my creative partner, Nick Louvel, and saying, hey man, I think this is gonna be good. And then I found everybody else. And then as the story started piecing together, I was like, holy cow, it's very unusual to get a story like this. And then there was a moment very late in the film, or there, there are three big reveals in the third act, the last five minutes of the film. And one of them, of course, is Lisa Pruitt and what happened to her. And that is the result of a memo that I was never supposed to read. It was mm. mistakenly handed off to me. And I'll never forget the night where I was reading it. And um, it was one of the, am I allowed to swear in this? Yeah. Okay. So do. it was one of those holy fucking shit moments. And uh-huh. you rarely have those. It was like rubbing the eyes, like thinking this, I cannot possibly be seeing this. Is yeah. this real? And to have, and I remember the when I got off the phone with her, realizing that I had just told her something 
it changed her life. You know, she had this enormous role in this story, had no idea for almost 20 years. And that was one of the best days in my life was to be able to tell her that. And I remember thinking, this story is so fucking cool because it's about redemption, redemption, redemption. And every single person who talked to me is part of this story believed that the world had passed them by and this was something that maybe they'll tell their grandchildren. Even the women in this story, they said, we thought the world forgot about us until Michelle showed up. And I love that this story was there. I love the fact that I was able to find everybody. And I love the fact that pretty much everything I'd done in my crew previously, every single skill was put to the test to tell this story. And I love the fact that it pushed me as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that it feels more like a narrative, and that was the intent. The intent yeah. was that you would sit down and feel like you are very much part of a legal thriller. And um, hopefully that's what Nick and I did, because I will always say that it's like, you know, it's the one in a million stories, you know, that this one. It's, the Uncondemned is very special on many levels. When promoting your project, it can sometimes feel like you're shouting into the void and nobody's listening. Smarthouse Creative is here to help. Visit smarthousecreative.com to learn more and get started today. That way, the next time you're shouting into that void, we'll make sure people are listening. So uh, let's backtrack a little bit to uh, near the beginning of your career. So you uh, wrote a book a new kind of party animal, subtitled How the Young Are Redefining Politics as Usual. So where did that book come from, and how did it uh, sort of set your career on a trajectory? So uh, this was not supposed to be the first book of mine that was published. I I always wanted to be the great American novelist, and I wrote short stories as a kid. I wrote my first short story when I was five. It's called Kitty. Okay. So always a storyteller. (laughs) Always a storyteller. I wrote my first novel when I was seven, also called Kitty. Oh, great. The extended version. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, Bunnyville, that was my sister's favorite. It's all (laughs) about where the Easter Bunny lives. Very complicated story. Investigative Uh, journalism. Investigative journalism. (laughs) I'm telling you, you want to know about the Easter Bunny? I got the stories. Um, and, And then one day when I was 11, I actually wrote a sort of a real story. And it I was called the Mointer Mansion Adventure, which is a stupid title, and it wasn't a really <laughs> bright story about two girls that go into a haunted mansion and find a different world. I, I honestly, I think that's what it was about. Okay. Anyway, I wanted to send it to my um, to a publisher, and keep in mind I'm 11, so I <laughs> my mom gave me her her manual typewriter and said, "Well, teach yourself how to type." I'm like, okay, so I my typing form to this day is stupid, um, and I typed six fingers maybe three four fingers three, three. Yes. yes three, <laughs> and I typed out this story and I sent it off to my favorite publishing house. Well, my favorite publishing house they published my favorite books, which were the Little House on the Prairie books. Okay, so yeah. it's Harper and Row. So I sent it off to them, and they wrote a very nice letter back and said it was the best book by an 11-year-old that they had ever read. Um, <laughs> they did not accept it for publication. But sure. this is all I was saying. Like, I then spent my time in school writing lots and lots and lots of novels. Believe it or not, I have stacks of these things that sure. I wrote as a kid. Yeah. Um, I started writing plays. Um, I really developed an ear for, for dialogue and actually um, did okay. I had three plays produced when I was fairly young. But... What I went, I went off to college um, my, my father saying, you do not have a trust fund, so figure out a way to support yourself. <laughs> so I studied journalism. And when I was studying journalism at Northwestern, I decided to apply at the Chicago Tribune um, sports page. And 
um, I'm telling you this lengthy thing for a reason. There used yeah. to be a job, because I'm old, when, <laughs> um, where you could sit on the sports desk and on Friday and Saturday nights and you would just take sports scores, the, the high school football game scores, and you would yeah. put them into a system and then they'd be published the next day. Super easy job, and they usually hire a kid, you know, um, to do it. So I thought, well, I need a part-time job, and I've written, I've got some clips here that I wrote in high school, so I'll, I'll apply. Well, my letter and the clips just happened across the desk of the editor um, at just the time when he wanted to start bringing in more women. Hmm. So he's like, I'm going to give you a tryout. I'm 18 years old. Chicago's one of the great sports towns, always has been. This is the Chicago Tribune. That's huge. And to put into context what era this was, Ditka was still the coach of the Bears. Um, Michael Jordan was not yet Michael Jordan, but he was there. Uh, Dennis Rodman was there. He hadn't lost his mind yet. Scotty right. <laughs> Pippen, everything. Um, and I wrote a couple articles, and they liked them. And so I started writing sports. So all through college, I wrote sports. And then I graduate and decide what I really should do is go learn about how the country works, and I end up getting a job on Capitol Hill. And my thought was, I will work on Capitol Hill, learn about how the country works, um, and I'll go home at night and write my novel that, and that will be published. By the time I, I told myself I want my book, first book published by the time I'm 26. So, that's, yeah. <laughs> not bad, right? Well, Very, yeah. <laughs> so, what happened was um, I got an informational interview at the New York Times, and I was up there with my little sports clips from the Chicago Tribune mm -hmm. and uh, meeting with Howell Raines, who would go on to become the editor of the New York Times. Okay. Anyway, this was back when he was the uh, op-ed page and editorial page editor. And I, he had a lot of time on his hands that day because it was the biggest snowstorm in New York history at that point. And so people were cross-country skiing down the streets. I somehow made it from D.C. Oh, wow. up to New York. Uh -huh. And he was just like, so what's going on on Capitol Hill? So I started to tell him about how most young people on the Hill, even those who work for members of Congress, did not subscribe to either major party. Mm. And he's like, tell me more. So I started telling him about how uh, there was this strain of fiscal responsibility, but also social responsibility. And how, but the, the essential part, which was really intriguing, was the fact that most young people did not buy into either party. Yeah, especially ones who are working yeah. for yeah. either party. <laughs> so he said, well, Maybe you should write this up. I said, for what? And he goes, for the Times. I was like, okay. So <laughs> I wrote an op-ed. And um, the headline of it was A New Kind of Party Animal. And that became the basis for the book proposal that became this book. And um, I was at Harper Collins, you know, <laughs> precursor to the, 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 the inheritor of Harper and Rowe. I was at Harper Collins and Simon and Schuster on my 26th birthday, meeting with editors. And a week to the day after I turned 26, Simon and Schuster bought the book. So. Oh, it's, <laughs> that, that's, that's pretty, pretty great. close. Yeah, yeah, you just missed it. You know, probably close shouldn't beat enough. yourself up too much. Close about enough, it. yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. So the book gets published then, and what happens gets next? Gets horrible reviews. Awful, awful reviews. So bad you can't <laughs> believe it. And. I believe Kirkus even said it was not recommended. I mean, just oh, wow. awful reviews. Because I'm saying something really different, and people didn't know sure. what to do with that. Yeah. And then one of the reviews that was just so disappointing to me was the review in Salon.com. And the reviewer, all it was was about my, my photograph, my author's photo. And 
I remember crying about that because it didn't occur to me. I mean, I like my author's photo. I thought it was nice. Um, and to be criticized for my appearance, I think that's always hard for anybody. Well, especially um, in a book review. Yeah. Like it's the yeah, it's, least appropriate place. It's so demoralizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like criticize my, you know, use of the language or, you know, whatever. Sure. But um, structure is fine, too. But. Um, do not even criticize the merit of the ideas. So anyway, I, I did the only thing I could think of, which was I wrote him a thank you note. Um, and I did it because I was planning a long game here. I was going to be back. I was going to get a novel published. And I was going to have a long career, um, <laughs> whether they liked it or not. And I just wanted to let him know that and 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 be polite while I was doing it. So sure. anyway, I wrote him yeah. a, a note, a letter. Back in those days, there was no email. And <laughs> wrote him a letter thanking him for taking the time. And he, um, you know, out of thousands of books, he chose to review mine. And I did say I do disagree with some of what you wrote, but thank you for taking the time. He did write back to me and said he was very surprised to hear from me mm -hmm. and thanked me for taking my time. And then a few years later, when my first novel came out, he gave it a great review. He not only reviewed <laughs> it, but gave it a great review. That's great. Nothing was that said about my photograph. That is the long game. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. And what's the name of the, or the title of that novel? I just sighed because I, so it's called uh, The Latest Bombshell. And it's um, about a charming young political consultant with a thing for well-dressed men, champagne, and the truth. And it's a modern retelling of the Dreyfus Affair. Uh -huh. So I, I thought I wrote a really serious book about what honor means today. So imagine my dismay when the book review said it was a wonderful beach read. <laughs> I was so upset. I was like, I can't win for trying here. But it was okay. I mean, it got great reviews, and it's it's out there. And then the, the sequel is called Our Girl in Washington. And All right. But the basis of it was interesting, a new kind of party animal. I uh, because of that book, I was on television um, to talk about whatever the issue of the day was. And um, I just kept getting rebooked and rebooked and rebooked. Mm -hmm. And then one day, CNN headline news called and said, we're looking for a political analyst for the 2000 election. Are you interested? And I was like, no, because I'm going to write books. Right. You want to demoralize an author? <laughs> Tell her she should go on TV. And my friends were all like, maybe you should go. You are not making a whole lot of money and this could help. And I caught on with audiences. And then at the end of that, they said, would you like to come on and work full time? And I mm -hmm. said, not as an analyst. I'm a trained reporter. And that's how I became political anchor. Well, that's a great, great uh, origin story there. So uh, <laughs> wrapping up a little bit, like wrapping up slowly. Yeah. Uh, when did you realize that you had that audience, that people uh, connected with you when you were reporting? What you was know, that like or what was that moment? It really, that really started happening when I went to work for Bill Moyers and I was his investigative correspondent. And that's when I was doing long form journalism, which is always such a privilege and such a pleasure to do. It's hard to do, but it's great. Um, hard to do a 20 minute story. But that was the first time I had people walking up to me in airports saying, I saw that story and it changed how I thought or changed my life or I need to do something. And that's when I realized the enormous opportunity and gift that um, having that kind of platform is and then what a responsibility it is to do something with it that contributes positively because I always say like look let's face it I'm an upper middle class white American who's been very well educated um, and I am throwing race into there because I think it's important to just come clean like that's an advantage um, mm -hmm. and with all of those what those 
advantages comes a responsibility. Like through the grace of fate, here I am and I need to do something with that and need to amplify um, other voices. And um, whether that's me being in front of the camera, me being a director, or me helping people to, with their own projects to come forward and to pursue things. Yeah, and I think that sort of uh, perhaps described as mentorship Mm-hmm. can be just as important as telling the story yourself because you're helping somebody else to form those tools and hone them to be able to do that on and on. So I think that's very, very laudable. And you don't think you see it enough. I wish more people would have, you know, mentors or more people like you would take the time to say, I'm going to be a mentor like you are saying there. Yeah, we've got... We're we've got, reaching out to people. We have now. like an 80% request of return rate with our interns. They always try to come back and, and intern again. But um, I was told by one of my mentors, he said, you know, you've had really good training, Michelle, um, and now you need to take all of that and you need to give it back. Yeah, and that leaves... Uh, that's a that's a heavy responsibility in a really positive way. So that's, uh, that's great to hear. So uh, it, it sounds like then, you know, talking about amplifying these stories or bringing uh, these voices to the forefront somehow that that maybe are overlooked or underprivileged in some way is that what led to your investigative journalism in haiti and then eventually uh, with the uh, international court or how did that sort of <laughs> well about? haiti happened because i was taking french and if you take French over the age of 40, it's the most miserable possible experience. You just want to kill yourself. It's well, I remember it being pretty bad when you were 20, when I was, <laughs> when I was 20. So maybe well, it hasn't changed. I don't it know just, what the age It was meant. the worst thing I have ever, I had done to myself. But my, my teacher was from Haiti. And so the earthquake happened in January 2010. She went down there in March and came back and said, Michelle, if you could be in the camps at night and hear the women cry, it would break your heart. Mm. And I thought, well, what happened to the money we all donated? And then I thought, wait, that's what I do. I track this stuff. So I started tracking it and went down there. And it was a web series. We started out as a web series. Haiti, where did the money go? You can still find it online. And then on the basis of that, some of my former PBS colleagues came and said, you should do a documentary. And I was too naive to say, oh, that's too hard. I was like, (laughs) okay, let's do a documentary. (laughs) And then everything possible went wrong. Um, All the sponsors pulled out because we were going after the American Red Cross. Um, but what happened was the uh, it became a national broadcast despite the best efforts of the American Red Cross. And this little movie um, fundamentally changed U.S. policy. It's changed training programs. It really is about how to do better at doing good. And mm. what's wonderful is this woman on the cover, Wilna, um, we just found her again. Um, it's kind of hard to find some of these folks because after they're in a camp, it's very transient. We just found her in October, and it was one of the folks who's in this film, Mark Snyder. He saw her, and he's like, oh, my God, Wilna. And she, her question was, um, has anyone heard my voice? And he said, 20 million Americans have heard your voice. She's like, what? And <laughs> so she's actually out of the camps now. We do have, um, we do not um, donate money directly to anybody that we do a story about. But if people want to help out the folks who we've covered, we do work with other um, NGOs and organizations to facilitate that. So very happy to tell you that Wilna and her children are out of the camp. Her children are in school. And Wilna, um, Wilna's getting her high school um, diploma now, and she's going to go on to nursing school. Oh, that's great. Uh, so this is, uh, we're talking about a, a documentary that Michelle directed called Haiti, Where Did the Money Go? And 
You said people can find that online? Yeah, it's on iTunes for a, a dollar. So, And what's really cool is it, it did, uh, this little film went on to win a lot of awards, and it was very exciting because it, it did win the 2013 National Moreau Award for Best TV Documentary. We were really excited about that. That's a that. big deal. Yeah, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, I won the big award. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's uh, that's definitely notable. So uh, this was produced uh, by Film at 11, which that's is my company. the name yep. of your company, right? So how did... Haiti, where did the money go? How did making that from the, you know, taking it from the web series into a documentary and then having it broadcast and developing your company and sort of this all coming together, how did that make it easier or more difficult to decide to uh, follow the story that eventually became The Uncondemned? Well, one of the weird things that happened with with the Haiti documentary, when all of our sponsors pulled out, the only way to get it done was to crowdfund. Mm. And that was pretty new at the time. But yeah. what happened was when the Red Cross went after us, um, we had this small army that was ready to push back. So it wasn't like I was this little indie producer standing all alone. I mean, I was, um, but at the same time, I had all these troops who were ready to say, oh, no, no, we're standing with this film. And that was a really good lesson to learn because when it came time to do The Uncondemned, I thought, okay, what I really want to do here more than anything is to help facilitate a cultural shift. We have to start thinking of sexual violence in another way. Take the sexual out of it because sex is supposed to be beautiful, lovely, kind, and amazing. And there's nothing about the act of rape in war, um, rape in general, that would be applicable to any of those words I just used. Mm -hmm. It's an act of power, torture, humiliation. It's about control. It's about establishing control. And it's about trying to destroy somebody. So... If you want to create a cultural shift, though, you can't start from the moment the film comes out. It has to begin before that. Mm-hmm. So we decided to crowdfund it because we wanted to create the momentum for all the people who are already in the space to take the film and, con- and continue on with their work and maximize that. So we have over 7,000 donors for this film. Um, And we started having all sorts of gatherings. We have salon discussions. We've had cocktail conversations. We've had dinners. We've had all sorts of things for the last three years. And that was leading up to the film coming out. And part of that was just about, let's have a conversation. And my pitch for the whole time, especially with The Uncondemned, but it really started with Haiti, was come with me if you want to change the world and have a good time doing it. Well, this has been a great conversation. Where can people find information about The Uncondemned? Where can they find you online? Well, you can find information about The Uncondemned on our website, theuncondemned.com. We also have a Facebook page. We've got a Twitter. We've got an Instagram. I am also on Twitter, um, Michelle Film at 11. And I'm also on Instagram, mlmitchell70. And I do not do the same thing on all my feeds. Everything is a little bit different because otherwise I would be bored. Sure. Um, And and your audience (laughs) would be too. Yes. And we do have a really vibrant Facebook community. But um, definitely, if you take the time to sign up on our website for our email list, um, that puts you right in the thick of things because we always have something going on. Well, thank you very much, Michelle, for joining us. That's Michelle Mitchell. Her film is The Uncondemned. And this is Brad Wilkie signing off with These Are My People from Smart House Creative. Thanks. Have a great day. These Are My People is a podcast produced by Smart House Creative, a marketing and digital strategy agency in Seattle, Washington.